Chapter Seven of the Golden Bow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Monsbru, Helsingfors, Finland. The Golden Bow by Sir James Fraser. Chapter Seven: Incarnate Human Gods. The instances which in the preceding chapters I have drawn from the beliefs and practices of rude people all over the world may suffice to prove that the savage fails to recognize those limitations to his power over nature which seem so obvious to us. In a society where every man is supposed to be endowed more or less with powers which we should call supernatural, it is plain that the distinction between gods and men is somewhat blurred, or rather has scarcely emerged. The conception of gods as superhuman beings endowed with powers to which man possesses nothing comparable in degree and hardly even in kind, has been slowly evolved in the course of history. By primitive peoples the supernatural agents are not regarded as greatly, if at all, superior to man, for they may be frightened and coerced by him into doing his will. At this stage of thought the world is viewed as a great democracy, all beings in it, whether natural or supernatural, are supposed to stand on a footing of tolerable equality. But with the growth of his knowledge, man learns to realize more clearly the vastness of nature and his own littleness and feebleness in presence of it. The recognition of his helplessness does not, however, carry with it a corresponding belief in the impotence of those supernatural beings with which his imagination peoples the universe. On the contrary, it enhances his conception of their power, for the idea of the world as a system of impersonal forces acting in accordance with fixed and invariable laws has not yet fully dawned or darkened upon him. The germ of the idea he certainly has, and he acts upon it, not only in magic art, but in much of the business of daily life. But the idea remains undeveloped, and so far as he attempts to explain the world he lives in, he pictures it as the manifestation of conscious will and personal agency. If then he feels himself to be so frail and slight, how vast and powerful must he deem the beings who control the gigantic machinery of nature? Thus, as his old sense of equality with the gods slowly vanishes, he resigns at the same time the hope of directing the course of nature by his own unaided resources, that is, by magic and looks more and more to the gods as the sole repositories of those supernatural powers which he once claimed to share with them. With the advance of knowledge, therefore, prayer and sacrifice assume the leading place in religious ritual, and magic, which once ranked with them as a legitimate equal, is gradually relegated to the background and sinks to the level of a black art. It is now regarded as an encroachment, at once vain and impious, on the domain of the gods, and as such encounters the steady opposition of the priests, whose reputation and influence rise or fall with those of their gods. Hence, when at a late period the distinction between religion and superstition has emerged, we find that sacrifice and prayer are the resource of the pious and enlightened portion of the community, while magic is the refuge of the superstitious and ignorant. But when... Still later, the conception of the elemental forces as personal agents is giving way to the recognition of natural law. Then magic, based as it implicitly is on the idea of a necessary and invariable sequence of cause and effect, independent of personal will, reappears from the obscurity and discredit into which it had fallen, and by investigating the causal sequences in nature, directly prepares the way for science. Alchemy, leads up to chemistry. The notion of a man-god, or of a human being endowed with divine or supernatural powers, belongs essentially to that earlier period of religious history in which gods and men are still viewed as being of much the same order, and before they are divided by the impassable gulf which, to later thought, opens out between them. Strange, therefore, as may seem to us the idea of a god incarnate in human form, it has nothing very startling for early man, who sees in a man-god or a god-man only a higher degree of the same supernatural powers which he arrogates in perfect good faith to himself. Nor does he draw any very sharp distinction between a god and a powerful sorcerer. 
His gods are often merely invisible magicians, who, behind the veil of nature, work the same sort of charms and incantations which the human magician works in a visible and bodily form among his fellows. And as the gods are commonly believed to exhibit themselves in the likeness of men to their worshippers, it is easy for the magician, with his supposed miraculous powers, to acquire the reputation of being an incarnate deity. Thus beginning as little more than a simple conjurer, the medicine man or magician tends to blossom out into a full-blown god and king in one. Only in speaking of him as a god, we must beware of importing into the savage conception of deity those very abstract and complex ideas which we attach to the term. Our ideas on this profound subject are the fruit of a long intellectual and moral evolution, and they are so far from being shared by the savage that he cannot even understand them when they are explained to him. Much of the controversy which has raged as to the religion of the lower races has sprung merely from a mutual misunderstanding. The savage does not understand the thoughts of the civilized man, and few civilized men understand the thoughts of the savage. When the savage uses his word for God, he has in mind a being of a certain sort. When the civilized man uses his word for God, he has in his mind a being of a very different sort. And if, as commonly happens, the two men are equally unable to place themselves at the other's point of view, nothing but confusion and mistakes can result from their discussions. If we civilized men insist on limiting the name of God to that particular conception of the divine nature which we ourselves have formed, then we must confess that the savage has no god at all. But we shall adhere more closely to the facts of history if we allow most of the higher savages at least to possess a rudimentary notion of certain supernatural beings who may fittingly be called gods, though not in the full sense in which we use the word. That rudimentary notion represents in all probability the germ out of which the civilized peoples have gradually evolved their own high conceptions of deity. And if we could trace the whole course of religious development, we might find that the chain which links our idea of the Godhead with that of the savage is one and unbroken. With these explanations and cautions, I will now adduce some examples of gods who have been believed by their worshippers to be incarnate in living human beings, whether men or women. The persons in whom a deity is thought to reveal himself are by no means always king or descendants of kings. The supposed incarnation may take place even in men of the humblest rank. In India, for example, one human god started in life as a cotton bleacher and another as the son of a carpenter. I shall therefore not draw my examples exclusively from royal personages, as I wish to illustrate the general principle of the deification of living men, in other words, the incarnation of a deity in human form. Such incarnate gods are common in rude society. The incarnation may be temporary or permanent. In the former case, the incarnation, commonly known as inspiration or possession, reveals itself in supernatural knowledge rather than in supernatural power. In other words, its usual manifestations are divination and prophecy rather than miracles. On the other hand, when the incarnation is not merely temporary, when the divine spirit has permanently taken up its abode in a human body, the god-man is usually expected to vindicate his character by working miracles. Only we have to remember that by men at this stage of thought, miracles are not considered as breaches of natural law. Not conceiving the existence of natural law, primitive man cannot conceive a breach of it. A miracle is to him merely an unusually striking manifestation of a common power. The belief in temporary incarnation or inspiration is worldwide. Certain persons are supposed to be possessed from time to time by a spirit or deity, while the possession lasts, their own personality lies in abeyance, and the presence of the spirit is revealed by convulsive shiverings and shakings of the man's whole body, by wild gestures and excited looks, all of which are referred, not to the man himself, but to the spirit which has entered into him, and in this abnormal state all his utterances are accepted as the voice of the god or spirit dwelling in him and speaking through him. Thus, for example, in the Sandwich Islands, the king, personating the god, uttered the responses of the oracle from his concealment in a frame of wicker work. But in the southern islands of the Pacific, the god frequently entered the priest, who, inflated as it were with the divinity, 
ceased to act or speak as a voluntary agent, but moved and spoke as entirely under supernatural influence. In this respect, there was a striking resemblance between the rude oracles of the Polynesians and those of the celebrated nations of ancient Greece. As soon as the god was supposed to have entered the priest, the latter became violently agitated and worked himself up to the highest pitch of apparent frenzy. The muscles of the limbs seemed convulsed, the body swelled, the countenance became terrific, the features distorted, and the eyes wild and strained. In this state he often rolled on the earth, foaming at the mouth, as if laboring under the influence of the divinity by whom he was possessed, and in shrill cries, and violent and often indistinct sounds, revealed the will of the god. The priests, who were attending and versed in the mysteries, received and reported to the people the declarations which had been thus received. When the priest had uttered the response of the oracle, the violent paroxysm gradually subsided, and comparative composure ensued. The god did not, however, always leave him as soon as the communication had been made. Sometimes the same taura, or priest, continued for two or three days possessed by the spirit or deity, a piece of native cloth of a peculiar kind, worn around one arm, was an indication of inspiration, or the indwelling of the god with the individual who wore it. The acts of the man during this period were considered as those of the god, and hence the greatest attention was paid to his expressions, and the whole of his deportment. When Uruhia, under the inspiration of the spirit, the priest was always considered as sacred as the god, and was called, during this period, Atua, god, though at other times only denominated Taura, or priest. But examples of such temporary inspiration are so common in every part of the world, and are now so familiar through books on ethnology that it is needless to multiply illustrations of the general principle. It may be well, however, to refer to two particular modes of producing temporary inspiration, because they are perhaps less known than some others, and because we shall have occasion to refer to them later on. One of these modes of producing inspiration is by sucking the fresh blood of a sacrificed victim. In the temple of Apollo Diodratus at Argus, a lamb was sacrificed by night once a month. A woman, who had to observe a rule of chastity, tasted the blood of the lamb, and thus being inspired by the god she prophesied or divined. At Aegira in Achaea, the priestess of earth drank the fresh blood of a bull before she descended into the cave to prophecy. Similarly, among the Kuruvikkarans, a class of bird-catchers and beggars in southern India, the goddess Kali is believed to descend upon the priest, and he gives oracular replies after sucking the blood which streams from the cutthroat of a goat. At the festival of the Alfurs of Minahassa in northern Celebes, after a pig has been killed, the priest rushes furiously at it, thrusts his head into the carcass, and drinks of the blood. Then he is dragged away from it by force and set on a chair, whereupon he begins to prophesy how the rice crop will turn out that year. A second time he runs at the carcass and drinks of the blood. A second time he is forced into the chair and continues his predictions. It is thought that there is a spirit in him which possesses the power of prophecy. The other mode of producing temporary inspiration, to which I shall here refer, consists in the use of a sacred tree or plant. Thus in the Hindu Kush, a fire is kindled with twigs of the sacred cedar, and the Dainyal or Sibyl, with a cloth over her head, inhales the thick pungent smoke till she is seized with convulsions and falls senseless to the ground. Soon she rises and raises a shrill chant, which is caught up and loudly repeated by her audience. So Apollo's prophetess ate the sacred laurel, and was fumigated with it before she prophesied. The bacchanals ate ivy, and their inspired fury was by some believed to be due to the exciting and intoxicating properties of the plant. In Uganda, the priest, in order to be inspired by his god, smokes a pipe of tobacco fiercely till he works himself into a frenzy. The loud, excited tones in which he then talks are recognized as the voice of the god speaking through him. In Madura, an island off the north coast of Java, each spirit has its regular medium, who is oftener a woman than a man. To prepare herself for the reception of the spirit, she inhales the fumes of incense. 
sitting with her head over a smoking censer. Gradually she falls into a sort of trance, accompanied by shrieks, grimaces, and violent spasms. The spirit is now supposed to have entered into her, and when she grows calmer, her words are regarded as oracular, being the utterances of the indwelling spirit, while her own soul is temporarily absent. The person temporarily inspired is believed to acquire not merely divine knowledge, but also, at least occasionally, divine power. In Cambodia, when an epidemic breaks out, the inhabitants of several villages unite and go with a band of music at their head to look for the man whom the local god is supposed to have chosen for his temporary incarnation. When found, the man is conducted to the altar of the god, where the mystery of incarnation takes place. Then the man becomes an object of veneration to his fellows, who implore him to protect the village against the plague. A certain image of Apollo, which stood in a sacred cave at Hylae, near Magnesia, was thought to impart superhuman strength. Sacred men, inspired by it, leaped down precipices, tore up huge trees by the roots, and carried them on their backs along the narrowest defiles. The feats performed by inspired dervishes belong to the same class. Thus far, we have seen that the savage, failing to discern the limits of his ability to control nature, ascribes to himself and to all men certain powers which we should now call supernatural. Further, we have seen that, over and above this general supernaturalism, some persons are supposed to be inspired for short periods by divine spirit, and thus temporarily to enjoy the knowledge and power of the indwelling deity. From beliefs like these, it is an easy step to the conviction that certain men are permanently possessed by a deity, or in some other undefined way are endued with so high a degree of supernatural power as to be ranked as gods and to receive the homage of prayer and sacrifice. Sometimes these human gods are restricted to purely supernatural or spiritual functions. Sometimes they exercise supreme political power in addition. In the latter case, they are kings as well as gods, and the government is a theocracy. Thus, in the Marquesas or Washington Islands, there was a class of men who were deified in their lifetime. They were supposed to wield a supernatural power over the elements. They could give abundant harvests or smite the ground with barrenness, and they could inflict disease or death. Human sacrifices were offered to them to avert their wrath. There were not many of them, at the most one or two in each island. They lived in mystic seclusion. Their powers were sometimes, but not always, hereditary. A missionary has described one of these human gods from personal observation. The god was a very old man who lived in a large house with an enclosure. In the house was a kind of altar, and on the beams of the house and on the trees around it hung human skeletons, head down. No one entered the enclosure except the persons dedicated to the service of the god. Only on days when human victims were sacrificed might ordinary people penetrate into the precinct. This human god received more sacrifices than all the other gods. Often he would sit on a sort of scaffold in front of his house and call for two or three human victims at a time. They were always brought, for the terror he inspired was extreme. He was invoked all over the island, and offerings were sent to him from every side. Again, of the South Sea Islands in general, we are told that each island had a man who represented or personified the divinity. Such men were called gods, and their substance was confounded with that of the deity. The man-god was sometimes the king himself. Oftener, he was a priest or subordinate chief. The ancient Egyptians, far from restricting their adoration to cats and dogs and such small deer, very liberally extended it to men. One of these human deities resided at the village of Anabis, and burnt sacrifices were offered to him on the altars, after which, says Porphyry, he would eat his dinner just as if he were an ordinary mortal. In classic antiquity, the Sicilian philosopher Empedocles gave himself out to be not merely a wizard, but a god. Addressing his fellow citizens in verse, he said, O friends, in this great city that climbs the yellow slope of Agrigentum's citadel, who make good works your scope? Who offer to the stranger a haven quiet and fair? All hail among you, honoured! I walk with lofty air. With garlands, blooming garlands, you crown my noble brow. 
A mortal man no longer, a deathless godhead know. Wherever I go, the people crowd around and worship pay, and thousands follow seeking to learn the better way. Some crave prophetic visions, some smit with anguish sore, would fain hear words of comfort, and suffer pain no more. He asserted that he could teach his disciples how to make the wind to blow or be still, the rain to fall and the sun to shine, how to banish sickness and old age and raise the dead. When Demetrius Poliocrates restored the Athenian democracy in 307 BC, the Athenians decreed divine honors to him and his father Antigonus, both of them being then alive under the title of the Saviour Gods. Altars were set up to the saviors, and the priest appointed to attend to their worship. The people went forth to meet their deliverer with hymns and dances, with garlands and incense and libations. They lined the streets and sang that he was the only true god, for the other gods slept or dwelt far away, or were not. In the words of a contemporary poet, which were chanted in public and sung in private, Of all the gods the greatest and the dearest to the city are come, for Demeter and Demetrius together time has brought. She comes to hold the maiden's awful rites, and he joyous and fair and laughing, as befits a god. A glorious sight, with all his friends about him, he in their midst. They like the stars, and he the sun. Son of Poseidon, the mighty Aphrodite's son, all hail! The other gods dwell far away, or have no ears, or are not, or pay us no heed. But thee we present see, no god of wood or stone, but godhead true, therefore to thee we pray. The ancient Germans believed that there was something holy in women, and accordingly consulted them as oracles. Their sacred women, we are told, looked on the eddying rivers and listened to the murmur of the roar of the water, and from the sight and sound foretold what would come to pass. But often the veneration of the men went further, and they worshipped women as true and living goddesses. For example, in the reign of Vespasian, a certain Veleda of the tribe of the Brukteri was commonly held to be a deity, and in that character reigned over her people, her sway being acknowledged far and wide. She lived in a tower on the river Lippe, a tributary on the Rhine. When the people of Cologne sent to make a treaty with her, the ambassadors were not admitted to her presence. The negotiations were conducted through a minister, who acted as the mouthpiece of her divinity and reported her oracular utterances. The example shows how easily among our rude forefathers the idea of divinity and royalty coalesced. It is said that among the Gete, down to the beginning of our era, there was always a man who personified a god and was called God by the people. He dwelt on a sacred mountain and acted as adviser to the king. According to the early Portuguese historian Dos Santos, the Tsimbas or Muzimbas, a people of southeastern Africa, do not adore idols or recognize any god, but instead they venerate and honor their king, whom they regard as a divinity, and they say he is the greatest and best in the world. And the said king says of himself that he alone is god of the earth, for which reason, if it rains when he does not wish it to do so, or is too hot, he shoots arrows at the sky for not obeying him. The Mashona of southern Africa informed their bishop that they had once had a god, but that the Matabeles had driven him away. This last was in reference to a curious custom in some villages of keeping a man they called their god. He seemed to be consulted by the people and had presents given to him. There was one at a village belonging to a chief Magondi in the old days. We were asked not to fire off any guns near the village, or we should frighten him away. This Mashona god was formerly bound to render an annual tribute to the king of the Matabele in the shape of four black oxen and one dance. A missionary has seen and described the deity discharging the latter part of his duty in front of the royal hut. For three mortal hours, without a break, to the banging of a tambourine, the click of castanets, and the drone of a monotonous song, the swarthy god engaged in a frenzied dance, crouching on his hams like a tailor, sweating like a pig, and bounding about with an agility which testified to the strength and elasticity of his divine legs. The Baganda of Central Africa believed in a god of Lake Nyanza, who sometimes took up his abode in a man or woman. 
The incarnate god was much feared by all the people, including the king and the chiefs. When the mystery of incarnation had taken place, the man, or rather the god, removed about a mile and a half from the margin of the lake, and there awaited the appearance of the new moon before he engaged in his sacred duties. From the moment that the crescent moon appeared faintly in the sky, the king and all his subjects were at the command of the divine man, or Lubare, god, as he was called, who reigned supreme not only in matters of faith and ritual, but also in questions of war and state policy. He was consulted as an oracle. By his word he could inflict or heal sickness, withhold rain or cause famine. Large presents were made him when his advice was sought. The chief of Urua, a large region to the west of Lake Tanganyika, arrogates to himself divine honors and powers and pretends to abstain from food for days without feeling its necessity, and, indeed, declares that as a god he is altogether above requiring food and only eats, drinks, and smokes for the pleasure it affords him. Among the Gallas, when a woman grows tired of the cares of housekeeping, she begins to talk incoherently and to demean herself extravagantly. This is a sign of the descent of the Holy Spirit Kalla upon her. Immediately her husband prostrates himself and adores her. She ceases to bear the humble title of wife and is called Lord. Domestic duties have no further claim on her, and her will is divine law. The king of Loango is honored by his people as though he were a god, and he is called Sambi or Pango, which means god. They believe that he can let them have rain when he likes, and once a year in December, which is the time they want rain, the people come to beg of him to grant it to them. On this occasion, the king, standing on his throne, shoots an arrow into the air, which is supposed to bring on rain. Much the same is said of the king of Mombasa. Down to a few years ago, when his spiritual reign on earth was brought to an abrupt end by the carnal weapons of English marines and blue jackets, the king of Benin was the chief object of worship in his dominions. He occupies a higher post here than the Pope does in Catholic Europe, for he is not only God's vice-regent upon earth, but a God himself, whose subjects both obey and adore him as such, although I believe their adoration to arise rather from fear than love. The king of Idda told the English officers of the Niger expedition, God made me after his own image. I am all the same as God, and he appointed me as king. A peculiarly bloodthirsty monarch of Burma, by name Badun Sachin, whose very countenance reflected the inbred ferocity of his nature, and under whose reign more victims perished by the executioner than by the common enemy, conceived the notion that he was something more than mortal and that this high distinction had been granted him as a reward for his numerous good works. Accordingly, he laid aside the title of king and aimed at making himself a god. With this view, and in imitation of Buddha, who before being advanced to the rank of divinity, had quitted his royal palace in Seraglio and retired from the world, Baron Sachin withdrew from his palace to an immense pagoda, the largest in the empire, which he had been engaged in constructing for many years. Here he held conferences with the most learned monks, in which he sought to persuade them that the five thousand years assigned for the observance of the law of Buddha were now elapsed, and that he himself was the god who was destined to appear after that period, and to abolish the old law by substituting his own. But to his great mortification, many of the monks undertook to demonstrate the contrary, and this disappointment, combined with his love of power and his impatience under the restraints of an ascetic life, quickly disabused him of his imaginary godhead and drove him back to his palace and his harem. The king of Siam is venerated equally with the divinity. His subjects ought not to look him in the face. They prostrate themselves before him when he passes and appear before him on their knees, their elbows resting on the ground. There is a special language devoted to his sacred person and attributes, and it must be used by all who speak to or of him. Even the natives have difficulty in mastering this peculiar vocabulary. The hairs of the monarch's head, the soles of his feet, the breadth of his body, indeed every single detail of his person, both outward and inward, have particular names. When he eats or drinks, sleeps or walks, a special word indicates that these acts are being performed by the sovereign, 
and such words cannot possibly be applied to the acts of any other person whatever. There is no word in the Siamese language by which any creature of higher rank or greater dignity than a monarch can be described, and the missionaries, when they speak of God, are forced to use the native word for king. But perhaps no country in the world has been so prolific of human gods as India. Nowhere has the divine grace been poured out in a more liberal measure on all classes of society, from kings down to milkmen. Thus, among the Todas, a pastoral tribe of the Nilgiri hills of southern India, the dairy is a sanctuary, and the milkman who attends to it has been described as a god. On being asked whether the Todas salute the sun, one of these divine milkmen replied, Those poor fellows do so, but I, tapping his chest, I, a god, why should I salute the sun? Everyone, even his own father, prostrates himself before the milkman, and no one would dare to refuse him anything. No human being, except another milkman, may touch him, and he gives oracles to all who consult him, speaking with the voice of a god. Further, in India, every king is regarded as little short of a present god. The Hindu law book of Manu goes farther and says that even an infant king must not be despised from an idea that he is a mere mortal, for he is a great deity in human form. There is said to have been a sect in Orissa some years ago who worshipped the late Queen Victoria in her lifetime as their chief divinity. And to this day in India, all living persons remarkable for great strength or valor or for supposed miraculous powers run the risk of being worshipped as gods. Thus, a sect in the Punjab worshipped the deity whom they called Nikalsen. This Nikalsen was no other than the redoubted General Nicholson, and nothing that the general could do or say damped the ardor of his adorers. The more he punished them, the greater grew the religious awe with which they worshipped him. At Benares, not many years ago, a celebrated deity was incarnate in the person of a Hindu gentleman who rejoiced in the euphonious name of Swami Bhaskaranandaji Saraswati, and looked uncommonly like the late General Manning, only more ingenious. His eyes beamed with kindly human interest, and he took what is described as an innocent pleasure in the divine honours paid him by his confiding worshippers. At Chinchuad, a small town about ten miles from Pune in western India, there lives a family of whom one in each generation is believed by a large proportion of the Maharattas to be an incarnation of the elephant-headed god Ganpati. That celebrated deity was first made flesh about the year 1640 in the person of a Brahman of Pune by name Muraba Gosain, who sought to work out his salvation by abstinence, mortification, and prayer. His piety had its reward. The god himself appeared to him in a vision of the night, and promised that a portion of his, that is, of Ganpati's Holy Spirit, should abide with him and with his seed after him, even to the seventh generation. The divine promise was fulfilled. Seven successive incarnations, transmitted from father to son, manifested the light of Ganpati to a dark world. The last of the direct line, a heavy-looking god with very weak eyes, died in the year 1810. But the cause of truth was too sacred, and the value of the church property too considerable, to allow the Brahmins to contemplate with equanimity the unspeakable loss that would be sustained by a world which knew not Ganpati. Accordingly, they sought and found a holy vessel in whom the divine spirit of the Master had revealed itself anew, and the revelation has been happily continued in an unbroken succession of vessels from that time to this. But a mysterious law of spiritual economy, whose operations in the history of religion we may deplore, though we cannot alter, has decreed that the miracles wrought by the God-man in these degenerate days cannot compare with those which were wrought by his predecessors in days gone by, and it is even reported that the only sign vouchsafed by him to the present generation of vipers is the miracle of feeding the multitude, whom he annually entertains to dinner at Chinchvad. A Hindu sect, which has many representatives in Bombay and central India, holds that its spiritual chiefs or maharajas, as they are called, are representatives or even actual incarnations on earth of the god Krishna. 
and as Krishna looks down from heaven with most favor on such as minister to the wants of his successors and vikers on earth, a peculiar rite called self-devotion has been instituted, whereby his faithful worshippers make over their bodies, their souls, and, uh, what is perhaps still more important, their worldly substance to his adorable incarnations, and women are taught to believe that the highest bliss for themselves and their families is to be attained by yielding themselves to the embraces of those beings in whom the divine nature mysteriously coexists with the form and even the appetites of true humanity. Christianity itself has not uniformly escaped the taint of these unhappy delusions. Indeed, it has often been sullied by the extravagances of vain pretenders to a divinity equal to or even surpassing that of its great founder. In the second century, Montanus the Phrygian claimed to be the incarnate trinity, uniting in his single person God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Nor is this an isolated case, the exorbitant pretensions of a single ill-balanced mind. From the earliest times down to the present day, many sects have believed that Christ, nay God himself, is incarnate in every fully initiated Christian, and they have carried this belief to its logical conclusion by adoring each other. Tertullian records that this was done by his fellow Christians at Carthage in the second century. The disciple of St. Columba worshipped him as an embodiment of Christ. And in the eighth century, Elipandus of Toledo spoke of Christ as a god among gods, meaning that all believers were gods, just as truly as Jesus himself. The adoration of each other was customary among the Albigenses, and is noticed hundreds of times in the records of the Inquisition of Toulouse in the early part of the 14th century. In the 13th century, there arose a sect called the Brethren and Sisters of the Free Spirit, who held that by long and assiduous contemplation any man might be united to the deity in an ineffable manner, and become one with the source and parent of all things, and that he who had thus ascended to God and been absorbed in his beatific essence, actually formed part of the Godhead, was the Son of God in the same sense and manner with Christ himself, and enjoyed thereby a glorious immunity from the trammels of all laws human and divine. Inwardly transported by this blissful persuasion, though outwardly presenting them in their aspects and manners a shocking air of lunacy and distraction, the sectaries roamed from place to place, attired in the most fantastic apparel and begging their bread with wild shouts and clamour, spurning indignantly every kind of honest labour and industry as an obstacle to divine contemplation and to the ascent of the soul towards the father of spirits. In all their excursions they were followed by women with whom they lived on terms of the closest familiarity, those of whom who conceived they had made the greatest proficiency in the higher spiritual life dispensed with the use of clothes altogether in their assemblies, looking upon decency and modesty as marks of inward corruption, characteristics of a soul that still groveled under the dominion of the flesh, and had not yet been elevated into communion with the divine spirit, its centre and source. Sometimes their progress towards this mystic communion was accelerated by the Inquisition, and they expired in the flames, not merely with unclouded serenity, but with the most triumphant feelings of cheerfulness and joy. About the year 1830, there appeared, in one of the states of the American Union bordering on Kentucky, an impostor who declared that he was the Son of God, the Savior of mankind, and that he had reappeared on the earth to recall the impious, the unbelieving, and sinners to their duty. He protested that if they did not mend their ways within a certain time, he would give the signal, and in a moment the world would crumble to ruins. These extravagant pretensions were received with favor even by persons of wealth and position in society. At last the German humbly besought the new Messiah to announce the dreadful catastrophe to his fellow countrymen in the German language, as they did not understand English, and it seemed a pity that they should be damned merely on that account. The would-be saviour in reply confessed with great candour that he did not know German. What? retorted the German. You the son of God, and don't speak all languages, and don't even know German. Come, come, you're a knave, a hypocrite, and a madman. Bedlam is the place for you. 
the spectators laughed and went away ashamed of their credulity. Sometimes at the death of the human incarnation, the divine spirit transmigrates into another man. The Buddhist Tartars believe in a great number of living Buddhas, who officiate as great lamas at the head of the most important monasteries. When one of these great lamas dies, his disciples do not sorrow, for they know that he will soon reappear, being born in the form of an infant. Their only anxiety is to discover the place of his birth. If at the time they see a rainbow, they take it as a sign sent them by the departed lama to guide them to his cradle. Sometimes the divine infant himself reveals his identity. I am the grand lama, he says, the living Buddha of such and such a temple. Take me to my old monastery. I am its immortal head. In whatever way the birthplace of the Buddha is revealed, whether by the Buddha's own avowal or by the sign in the sky, tents are struck and the joyful pilgrims, often headed by the king or one of the most illustrious of the royal family, set forth to find and bring home the infant god. Generally he is born in Tibet, the Holy Land, and to reach him the caravan has often to traverse the most frightful desert. When at last they find a child, they fall down and worship him. Before, however, he is acknowledged as the Grand Lama whom they seek, he must satisfy them of his identity. He is asked the name of the monastery of which he claims to be the head, how far off it is, and how many monks live in it. He must also describe the habits of the deceased great lama and the manner of his death. Then various articles, as prayer books, teapots and cups, are placed before him, and he has to point out those used by himself in his previous life. If he does so without a mistake, his claims are admitted, and he is conducted in triumph to the monastery. At the head of all the lamas is the Dalai Lama of Lhasa, the Rome of Tibet. He is regarded as a living god, and at death his divine and immortal spirit is born again in a child. According to some accounts, the mode of discovering the Dalai Lama is similar to the method already described, of discovering an ordinary Grand Lama. Other accounts speak of an election by drawing lots from a golden jar. Wherever he is born, the trees and plants put forth green leaves. At his bidding, flowers bloom and springs of water rise, and his presence diffuses heavenly blessings. But he is by no means the only man who poses as a god in these regions. A register of all the incarnate gods in the Chinese empire is kept in the Lifanian or colonial office at Peking. The number of gods who have thus taken out a license is 160. Tibet is blessed with 30 of them, northern Mongolia rejoices in 19, and southern Mongolia basks in the sunshine of no less than 57. The Chinese government, with a paternal solicitude for the welfare of its subjects, forbids the gods and the register to be reborn anywhere but in Tibet. They fear lest the birth of a god in Mongolia should have serious political consequences by stirring the dormant patriotism and warlike spirit of the Mongols, who might rally around an ambitious native deity of royal lineage and seek to win for him, at the point of the sword, a temporal as well as a spiritual kingdom. But besides these public or licensed gods, there are a great many little private gods, or unlicensed practitioners of divinity, who work miracles and bless their people in holes and corners. And of late years, the Chinese government has winked at the rebirth of these pettifogging deities outside of Tibet. However, once they are born, the government keeps its eye on them as well as on the regular practitioners. And if any of them misbehaves, he is promptly degraded, banished to a distinct monastery, and strictly forbidden ever to be born again in the flesh. From our survey of the religious position occupied by the king in rude societies, we may infer that the claim to divine and supernatural powers put forward by the monarchs of great historical emperors like those of Egypt, Mexico, and Peru was not the simple outcome of inflated vanity or the empty expressions of a groveling adulation. It was merely a survival and extension of the old savage apotheosis of living kings. Thus, for example, as children of the sun, the Incas of Peru, were revered like gods, they could do no wrong, and no one dreamed of offending against the person, honor, or property of the monarch, or of any of the royal race. Hence, too, the Incas did not, like most people, look on sickness as an evil. They considered it 
a messenger sent from their father the son to call them to come and rest with him in heaven. Therefore the usual words in which an Inca announced his approaching end were these, My father calls me to come and rest with him. They would not oppose their father's will by offering sacrifice for recovery, but openly declared that he had called them to his rest. Issuing from the sultry valleys upon the lofty tableland of the Colombian Andes, the Spanish conquerors were astonished to find, in contrast to the savage hordes they had left in the sweltering jungles below, a people enjoying a fair degree of civilization, practicing agriculture, and living under a government which Humboldt has compared to the theocracies of Tibet and Japan. These were the Chibchas, Muscas, or Muscas, divided into two kingdoms, with capitals at Bogota and Tunja, but united apparently in spiritual allegiance to the high pontiff of Sogamoso or Iraka. By a long and ascetic novitiate, this ghostly ruler was reputed to have acquired such sanctity that the waters and the rain obeyed him, and the weather depended on his will. The Mexican kings at their accession, as we have seen, took a note that they would make the sun to shine, the clouds to give rain, the rivers to flow, and the earth to bring forth fruits in abundance. We are told that Montezuma, the last king of Mexico, was worshipped by his people as a god. The early Babylonian kings, from the time of Sargon I till the fourth dynasty of Ur or later, claimed to be gods in their lifetime. The monarchs of the fourth dynasty of Ur in particular had temples built in their honor. They set up their statues in various sanctuaries and commanded the people to sacrifice to them. The eighth month was especially dedicated to the kings, and sacrifices were offered to them at the new moon and on the fifteenth of each month. Again, the Parchan monarchs of the Arsacid house styled themselves brothers of the sun and moon and were worshipped as deities. It was esteemed sacrilege to strike even a private member of the Arsacid family in a brawl. The kings of Egypt were deified in their lifetime, sacrifices were offered to them, and their worship was celebrated in special temples and by special priests. Indeed, the worship of the kings sometimes cast that of the gods into the shade. Thus, in the reign of Merendra, a high official declared that he had built many holy places in order that the spirit of the king, the ever-living Merendra, might be invoked more than all the gods. It has never been doubted that the king claimed actual divinity. He was the great god, the golden Horus, and son of Ra. He claimed authority not only over Egypt, but over all lands and nations, the whole world and its length and its breadth, the entire compass of the great circuit of the sun, the sky and what is in it, the earth and all that is upon it, every creature that walks upon two or upon four legs, or that fly or flutter, the whole world offers her productions to him. Whatever in fact might be asserted of the sun-god was dogmatically predicable of the king of Egypt. His titles were directly derived from those of the sun-god. In the course of his existence, we are told, the king of Egypt exhausted all the possible conceptions of divinity which the Egyptians had framed for themselves. A superhuman god by his birth and by his royal office, he became the deified man after his death. Thus all that was known of the divine was summed up in him. We have now completed our sketch, for it is no more than a sketch of the evolution of that sacred kingship, which attained its highest form, its most absolute expression, in the monarchies of Peru and Egypt. Historically, the institution appears to have originated in the order of public magicians or medicine men. Logically, it rests on a mistaken deduction from the association of ideas. Men mistook the order of their ideas for the order of nature, and hence imagined that the control which they have, or seem to have, over their thoughts permitted them to exercise this corresponding control over things. The men, who for one reason or another, because of the strength or the weakness of their natural parts, were supposed to possess these magical powers in the highest degree, were gradually marked off from their fellows and became a separate class, was destined to exercise a most far-reaching influence on the political, religious, and intellectual evolution of mankind. Social progress, as we know, consists mainly in a successive differentiation of functions, or, in simpler language, a division of labor, 
the work which in primitive society is done by all alike, and by all equally ill, or nearly so, is gradually distributed among different classes of workers and executed more and more perfectly, and so far as the products, material or immaterial, of this specialized labor are shared by all, the whole community benefits by the increasing specialization. Now magicians or medicine men appear to constitute the oldest artificial or professional class in the evolution of society. For sorcerers are found in every savage tribe known to us, and among the lowest savages, such as the Australian Aborigines, they are the only professional class that exists. As time goes on and the process of differentiation continues, the order of medicine men is itself subdivided into such classes as the healers of disease, the makers of rain, and so forth, while the most powerful member of the order wins for himself a position as chief and gradually develops into a sacred king, his old magician functions falling more and more into the background and being exchanged for priestly or even divine duties, in proportion as magic is slowly ousted by religion. Still later, a partition is effected between the civil and the religious aspect of the kingship, the temporal power being committed to one man and the spiritual to another. Meanwhile, the magicians, who may be repressed, but cannot be extirpated by the predominance of religion, still addict themselves to their old occult arts in preference to the newer ritual of sacrifice and prayer, and in time the more sagacious of their number perceive the fallacy of magic and hit upon a more effectual mode of manipulating the sources of nature for the good of man. In short, they abandon sorcery for science. I am far from affirming that the course of development has everywhere rigidly followed these lines. It has doubtless varied greatly in different societies. I merely mean to indicate in the broadest outline what I conceive to have been its general trend. Regarded from the industrial point of view, the evolution has been from uniformity to diversity of function. Regarded from the political point of view, it has been from democracy to despotism. With the later history of monarchy, especially with the decay of despotism and its displacement by forms of government better adapted to the higher needs of humanity, we are not concerned in this inquiry. Our theme is the growth, not the decay, of a great and, in its time, beneficent institution. End of chapter 7 Recording by Monsbru, Helsingfors, Finland